We'll turn in our scriptures now to Zechariah chapter 4. That's page 794, if you're using the Pew Bible. Zechariah chapter 4. We come to the fifth night vision for this prophet. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said... I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. There are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this, ha- of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord stands Forever, this is a chapter that uh, has a number of more recognizable uh, lines uh, in it, um, verses that you, you perhaps are familiar with. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Certainly you've heard that before. Maybe you didn't know it came from Zechariah chapter 4. Another one that is is commonly referred to as well is from verse Uh, 10 in referencing uh, people who should not despise the day of small things. Um, In God's providence, I had um, a meeting with uh, Pastor Dale Van Dyke from Harvest back in uh, November or December. And uh, we were meeting over breakfast and he said to me, "Uh, Jonathan, don't despise the day of small things. I said, that's nice. Uh, Who said that? And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, I thought it was the Bible, but because you don't know that now, I'm kind of concerned. 
He said, I'm pretty sure it's Zechariah. And I, of course, there's nothing more embarrassing for a junior minister speaking to a senior minister uh, in the faith than saying, oh, that's really cool. Where's that from? And the answer is the Bible. Um, but that was that line for me. But the providential thing was that just a few days later, Brian Essice and I were having lunch. And he said, Jonathan, I wanted to share with you from Zechariah 4 and this line about not despising the day of small things. And that was when I realized, I think I'm going to preach through Zechariah. Um, next time I have opportunity to start a new book, as those were, were two meetings back-to-back, uh, drawing my focus to this great prophet. Well, I want us to consider this text in really just two main headings. We want to consider the meaning of the vision, and by that I'm referring to the symbolism, what these signs actually represent, so the meaning of it, but then the message that we find embedded right in the center of the vision, that's verses um, six through nine or six through ten. But first, let's start with the meaning, the symbolism, the significance of the object that Zechariah sees. There are two things that he sees. There's the golden lampstand, and then there the olive trees. First, the lamp. The lamp is described in a similar way to the golden lampstand that is um, uh, part of the tabernacle uh, furniture that we read of in, in Exodus. We call it a menorah. And that's actually because that's the Hebrew word for it. It's the word that's used in verse 2, transliterated. It is menorah. That is a Hebrew word. Um, And that means this kind of seven-prong candlestick. Uh, So if you have seen a menorah, um, that helps paint a picture for you. A lamp with a a stand at its center with three branches kind of coming off the center uh, stand on either side of it. Now, the lampstand, though, that Zechariah sees is even more ornate of a candelabra than what was in the original tabernacle. It's kind of confusing uh, to follow the uh, Hebrew here. Maybe if you have a study Bible, they graced you with uh, a little picture so that you, knew, uh, that you know what it kind of looks like. Uh, if, if you are a visual learner like me, then it would help you to go to Google Images and type in Zechariah's lampstand in the olive trees, and you'll get a better picture of of what this looks like, but I'll do my best to draw it out. But it seems to suggest that there is this this big uh, this large bowl sitting atop of the lamp stand on, on top of um, uh, the the center uh, shaft or the center stand, and the seven lamps are formed along the rim of the bowl itself. Uh, the bowl probably is holding the oil that fuels the, the lights uh, that are along the perimeter of the bowl. Verse 2, though, also says that there are seven lips on each of the seven lamps that are on top of the lampstand. So that's been taken to mean by some that perhaps on each of the uh, lamps there were seven lights, uh, seven wicks on each of the seven lamps. So... This one candelabra, this one lampstand, potentially had 49 flames on it. That's the idea. But in any case, what does the lampstand represent? Well, uh, there there are a number of options. Um, the, The best seems to be, when you look at the rest of Scripture, that light is representative of God's people. God's people. That they are a people that have a special calling, a special purpose, a mission even. Their mission statement is to bring light into a dark world, to reflect the the light 
uh, of God, the one who, who dwells in inapproachable light. Isaiah wrote of Israel. Let me just list a few passages for you that defend this uh, approach. Isaiah 60, 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Or again in Isaiah 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet until her righteousness shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a blazing torch. Jesus continues the imagery in the New Testament, doesn't he? He tells his disciples, and by extension he tells us, that we are the light of the world. He told his disciples to let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. But I think uh, the best basis for understanding the lampstand to be God's people is what we find in Revelation 1. You can turn there if you'd like. This is the beginning of John's vision, and we find as... We see actually a number of places throughout the book of Revelation, a sort of New Testament equivalent to Zechariah's vision. And that takes place at the start of the um, seven sermons to the seven churches. Uh, That begins in chapter 2. But first we have this vision in uh, verse 20 of chapter 1. Well, let's actually begin at verse 12. John says, I turned to see the voice of the one speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash about his chest. Now we skip to verse 20, where Jesus himself explains to John what the lampstands represent. He says in verse 20, And the seven golden lampstands... And the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands there represent the the elect, the the people of God, the church of God. And the same is true in Zechariah chapter 4. The lampstand is the elect, the people of God, the old covenant church of God. This is exactly where Jesus places himself in the center in in Revelation 1. He walks among his people. He's not far from his people. He walks among the lights. He is in the midst of his people Zechariah has this vision of a light, a beautiful light, a beautiful lampstand, and it's a picture of the beautiful people of God who are arrayed in his glory and his splendor and who are called to be a kingdom of priests uh, of their God and Father to the rest of the world. And so the first thing we have is this lampstand representing the people of God. Back in Zechariah 4, though, there was something else. There was something else. It was not just the, the lampstand. There's these two olive trees. Likely one on, on uh, either side uh, of the lampstand, probably with their branches kind of uh, uh, overspreading uh, the lampstand, putting the lampstand into its shade. This is uh, what, what puzzles Zechariah the most. Did you notice that as we read it? He really would like to know what these trees are. And it seems like the angel of the Lord isn't really interested in giving him an answer. He asks him three times before he gets an answer. Verse 4, 
And I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these? It seems to be in direct response to the two olive trees. What are these? What do these trees represent? And the angel says, do you not know? And I said, no. And then the angel says, well, I'm not going to tell you. And he diverts and he has this, um, uh, this kind of sidebar that we'll get to in a minute. But then we come back in verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And I put it a second way. I, I, I emphasized it yet another way. Verse 12, what are the two branches of the olive trees which are besides the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? That second, well, I guess technically it's the third question, but what's there in verse 12 when he reiterates it? We get a, a, a deeper image of the picture comes in, in better clarity to us. It's not just that there are these trees next to the lampstand, but there are these, these branch-like spouts coming out of the trunk of the trees, connecting the trees to the lampstand. And it seems to be that that, that is what is fueling the lampstand with olive oil. These olive trees have these spouts that are coming out and uh, touching the lampstands and fueling them, fueling the lampstands. And which we know is representative of the people of God. So then the question is, who are the people that fuel the people of God? Or, or what, 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 what do these trees represent that fuel the people of God? And the answer finally comes in verse 14, the last verse of our chapter. Do you know what these are? Zechariah, he's, he's exasperated at this point. No, my Lord, I already told you this. I don't know. Verse 14, then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The two anointed ones literally reads in Hebrew, the two sons of oil, the the oily ones. Uh, We know uh, from our scriptures that there were three types of people that received uh, an anointing of oil in Israel. There were the prophets, there were the priests, and the kings. They would have been sons of oil, oily ones. Um, uh, three, three offices, and yet there are two individuals here. There are two sons. And while there are prophets, priests, and kings, prophets came and went. And yet priests and kings were a perpetual office established as part of the theocracy uh, of Israel. You needed to have a priest. You needed to have the high priest. You needed to have a king. Uh, prophets, as I said, they kind of come and go. And, and we don't think that this could be uh, a prophet in this case because Zechariah is the prophet. He's there seeing the vision. So it makes the most sense that uh, these trees uh, are representative of the two perpetual offices of anointing, the priests and the kings. And they are the ones that support and lead the people of God, just as the, the oil coming from the tree uh, keeps the light burning. We could even get more specific, though, and say that this is not just any priest or king, but this would be the priest and the king at the time that Zechariah was, was prophesying. We know that the priest was Joshua. We read of him in chapter 3, the high priest. Well, Israel didn't have a king at this time, but they did have uh, someone who became sort of a governor to them, and that was Zerubbabel, who's already been mentioned a number of times in this vision. If you read Ezra and if you read Nehemiah and other post-exilic portions of Scripture, these two names come up again and again, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Sometimes he's um, referred to as Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak. 
and, uh, but it's the same person. And, and they're almost always mentioned next to one another, as though they come as a pair, that you can't have one without the other. You have the priest, and you have this one who is called, well, in Haggai, he's called the governor of Judah. This is Haggai, verse 1 of chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shilti, governor of Judah. And it also came to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so Haggai ministers um, a, a word specifically to these two people, the high priest of the day and the one who is the governor of Judah. Well, in a similar way, Zechariah for this vision is meant to be given specifically to Zerubbabel. It's not just given for Zechariah's benefit, not just for the nation's benefit, but specifically for Zerubbabel's benefit. And so now we want to hear the message of this vision. Now that we've kind of put into place uh, the, the symbolism, what it means, uh, what, what it represents, now we want to know what's the, what's the takeaway, what's the message We want to consider what it would have meant for Israel in their original context, but we'll also be making applications for us today. And notice where it's placed. It's placed right at the center of this prophecy there in verse, uh, starting in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Right in between seeing the lampstand and seeing the olive trees and And uh, Zechariah actually understanding what these things mean. So he first sees them, and at the end he understands what they are. And in between, he's given this oracle, this message. This is for uh, you to take to Zerubbabel. And it's placed at the center of the vision so that Zechariah would realize that it's actually the most important takeaway. His words to the governor of the people is the most important thing. Uh, We can talk uh, day in and, and day out about, well, what do you think the, uh, the, the lampstand means or the bowl or the seven things on the rim or the wicks and get all kind of caught up in this. And, and uh, people do that with the Bible and obscure passages of the Bible. But let's let the main thing be the main thing. And here we're told what the main thing is. It's the message to Zechariah. It doesn't matter what the other stuff means if you don't convey this message. Even if you get that right but you don't convey This message to Zerubbabel, it would have been for naught. So we really want to pay attention. And this message is meant to strengthen Zerubbabel in his charge, his his duty, his responsibility to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to reconstitute Israel as a nation. He is a key figure in God's mission to extend his kingdom His kingdoms reign from sea to shining sea. And right now, at this point in Israel's history, he's ready to give up. He's ready to throw in the towel, to give his two weeks notice, and likely to go back to Babylon. The people were complaining. Enemies were mounting attacks to try to stop the work. You remember the the vivid picture, the terrifying picture of Nehemiah as he tries to rebuild the city walls. They have a the hammer in one hand and a shield in the other because people are trying to, to uh, enemies come and, and trying to, to, to tear them down from their work and to defeat them. They're all discouraged at the fact that no matter how they rebuild the city, 
It would always pale in comparison to the uh, Jerusalem of David and Solomon's reign, uh, the good old days, we might say. And so you put all that together and they're discouraged. They're near defeat. They're ready to give up. And so to counter these thoughts of despair and, and real setbacks as they were, Zechariah was to communicate to Zerubbabel four things. And I want us to see that they build off one another. So we start with number one, and we'll see that number two builds off of one and so forth. First, the first thing that he was to understand is that the work was God's. The work was God's. It's not about you, Zerubbabel. It's not about you. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Verse 6, not by might, that is your might. Not by power, that is your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel must be reminded if, that the, work, if the work depended on his or the nation's own ex- exertion or effort, it would come to ruin. It could not be completed. But God's people are always supplied by his spirit in order to set their hands in a meaningful way and even in a successful way to the task that God gives us. We think of, uh, of that image of the oil fueling the lampstand. We've said that the light is representative of God's people and the trees are representative uh, of these leaders uh, of the nation, Zerubbabel and Joshua those who were anointed with oil. It was a a sign that God's spirit rested upon them, being anointed with oil, because the oil represents God's spirit. They were anointed as a sign that God's power was upon them, but they were anointed not to hoard God's spirit to themselves, but to dispense it and to equip the nations uh, with the spirit's gifts. And so we see that it is from Zerubbabel and Joshua, the trees, that this oil flows, this spirit oil flows to light and fuel the nation. That's that's the picture here. We have the priests and the king anointed with the spirit to give the spirit, to mediate the ministry of the spirit for the benefit of the people of God. That means that Zerubbabel was nothing more than a channel. That's all he was. And nothing more than a conduit which God would use to prove his power for his own people. We look to the New Testament, we see that Jesus fulfills that picture of uh, anointing in the Old Covenant. We see that we are right to understand that, that oil is meant to symbolize the Spirit because when he's anointed, it's not with oil, it literally is with The Holy Spirit at his baptism, our true prophet, priest, and king. But what does he do with that anointing? He doesn't keep it to himself. He ministers to us. He equips us. He gives us of the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost is the day that we see the oil of the Spirit coming from our priest king and lighting the the light of God's people. We even see the flames on, on top of their heads. A new covenant fulfillment of what Zechariah sees here. That, that Jesus, the priest king, 
would send his spirit to inspire and ignite his people for their mission. And we do have a mission, don't we? We have a mission. Jesus gives it to us that we should be his witnesses throughout all the world to make converts, to make disciples. And we need to remember this first fundamental thing that Zerubbabel is meant to Remember that the work is God's. That mission, it comes from God and it ultimately will be accomplished by God. We are nothing more than channels to be used by him. It's not by our might. It's not by our power. It's by God's spirit. And friends, there is something immeasurably freeing when you embrace that truth. Especially as you think of it in terms of your mission as a Christian. To be a witness, right? We will become either paralyzed in fear or or we will become... Uh, despondent uh, by discouragement at, at our own evangelistic efforts if we think it's up to us. Or, when things go well, we'll be filled with pride. But, it's not about me, and if I know that God is doing the work, then I can be bold, and I can be brave, and I can be humble, I can be self Forgetful, We sing in a beautiful hymn, May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only him. So first, the work is God's. Uh, second, since the work is God's, it cannot be stopped. What a word of exhilaration that is. Since the work is God's, it cannot be stopped. Then we read now in verse Seven, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. The mountain is a metaphor for any obstacle that might have stood in his way. Uh, Just as if you're on a run or a bike ride or a hike and and you come to a a steep climb, if you can find them in Michigan, uh, the more likely you are of uh, giving up that run or that bike ride or that climb and just turning right around. Now, what God is saying here isn't that there won't be obstacles. He's not saying that there won't be mountains. There is a mountain there, but it will be transformed. It will be leveled. It's not that there won't be obstacles. It's that they will be overcome. The massive mountain will become a petty plain. And I want to ask, is this your verse today? Is this yours? Do you look at the obstacles to your growth and grace obstacles to spreading the kingdom of Christ? And do you say to those obstacles, who do you think you are, O great mountain? I have God on my side. And you will become to me a level plane. Whether it's the world, the devil, whether it's your own sinful flesh, do you have this confidence before the whole host of enemies that try to Uh, try to deter us from God's work. Nothing can withstand the forward momentum, the progress of his plan. And you need to know that today. We we can uh, complain to, to some extent legitimately about the state of our nation as it regards to morality and, and the, the state and the church. But we shouldn't think that there's anything that this country can do, any, uh, um, any sort of um, downward spiral that it can head on and, and um, any sort of detour it can take 
that's going to mean that Christ's kingdom won't come. It doesn't matter if the Equality Act is passed. It, it doesn't matter if they start censoring preachers. It, it does, and hear me, it doesn't matter if they revoke our tax exemption. The gospel is still preached. And there are millions and millions of Christians who have a lot worse than us all over the world who would tell us that. Oh, it's really hard here, but we still preach the gospel. We need to recognize, look at any obstacle, and say, who do you think you are, O mountain? Don't you know that Jesus has said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church? Again, think of the boldness that would bolster our mission if we embrace this truth, even as it comes to us from Jesus Christ when he told us that if we had the faith of a the, uh, of, a, of a mustard seed. What, what does he say we could do? We could take a mountain and cast it into the heart of the sea. Since the work is God's, it cannot be stopped, no matter what man may try to do. Third, since the work is God's, it will be completed. It's closely related to the previous point, but it's one thing to say that the work of God won't stop. It's yet another to say it actually will reach its completion. And that's the great promise to Zerubbabel, that he's not just going to work ad nauseum forever and ever and never see the day when Israel is rebuilt or Jerusalem is rebuilt or the temple is rebuilt. It will be completed a few years after this prophecy. Zerubbabel is promised that he will be there to see the work to completion because God is in the work. So notice what we are told there in verse 7. He shall bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. In verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house. His hands shall also complete it. The same hands that laid the cornerstone will lay the capstone. Zerubbabel, it will be completed. And then what does the Lord say? Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Because it gets completed, you will know that this is a work of God. Because completion, consummation, is a divine thing. It's not a human thing. We're not good at completing things, are we? But God always completes what he starts. We can't say that. We live our lives with half-finished home projects, with the clutter of open tabs or um, emails that are begun and left to kind of rot in the purgatory of the draft folder for years on end. Uh, we let leftovers go bad in the fridge. We start diets and we don't finish them. Phone calls that we don't return. Resolutions that we abandon. Failed workout routines. What if the mission of the church was up to us? Praise God that the one who gives the work to us sees to it that we will be equipped by his spirit to complete it. This is a comfort to us personally, right? That the God who began a good work in me will see it to completion. But it's a good word for us corporately that the mission that God gives to the church to be witnesses is a work that he will also see to completion. Because God completes the project, Zerubbabel brings that final stone and he brings it amid shouts of grace, grace, not me, me. Grace should always 
be the crowning cry of every single one of God's works. Think of it. What, what do you have that you've not received? Paul says that in his writings. What is there in your life that you couldn't point to and say, this is God's grace? Everything should be crowned with a shout of grace, grace to it. Finally, fourthly, we've seen that the work is God's because the work is God's. It won't be stopped and it will reach its conclusion. And since now we know where God's work is headed, the final thing is that we should not despise where it's at now. The state of Israel, even after their return, was uh, pathetic, as we've said, compared to the, the good old glory days. Zerubbabel's project seemed to be a small thing. And so people despised it. They, they hated it, even. But God tells Zerubbabel, you just wait. Soon, people that despise this, that hate this, that think this is nothing, soon they will rejoice. Verse 10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. We can often be discouraged by what we assume to be small or insignificant things to us, maybe small um, progression in our sanctification after years of effort and prayer, maybe little interest from family and friends that we've been evangelizing for years on end. Uh, we, dis- we get discouraged by small churches, small denominations, small this, small that. And we want something that's big and bold, And something that we can brag about. But how interesting that God, in all of his glory, in all of his grandeur, he does not despise small things. He does not despise them. In an article at Desiring God, Scott Hubbard perceptively writes this. He says, the big God is apparently patient enough to endure centuries of small days. His kingdom, which will one day cover the earth, does not begin big. It grows from one old man and his barren wife. It grows from the fewest of all peoples. It grows from a mustard seed and a bit of leaven. It grows from an embryo in the womb of a virgin. It grows from 12 uneducated men. And so what would it mean for us to worship of God who works like this? Well... It will mean praying for the big, longing for the big, working towards the big, all the while faithfully and contentedly devoting ourselves to the small things. And so he says, pray for revival and then make your kids breakfast. Dream of the knowledge of God's glory flooding the earth and then bring a taste of that glory to the neighbor next door. Preach a grand vision to dozens or hundreds on Sunday, but then sit and listen to the wounded on Monday For as long as we expect big to come now and on the world's terms, whether in our church, our cities, our souls, we will be tempted to forsake the seemingly weak instruments of faith and faithfulness. Any of us may forsake the small obedience in front of us for tasks that seem more interesting. I want to read that last line again. Any of us may forsake the small obedience in front of us for tasks that seem more interesting. God has given us a mission. It's a big mission. There's no way, there's no other way to describe it. You shall be my witnesses in all the earth. And yet, how do we make witnesses? How do we make disciples? 
Well, Jesus speaks of a book. And he speaks of water. It's not that flashy. It's not that exciting. The way that the big mission of God comes to its fulfillment is through small acts of faithfulness. God does not despise small things. And that means, friends, I want you to know tonight, that means he doesn't despise you or me. We're burdened sinners now, soon to be glorified saints. It means that we shouldn't despise our work, praying, uh, coming to church, being kind, loving the unlovely, doing your chores, boys and girls, obeying your mom and dad, being ready to forgive, reading our Bibles, not retaliating when offended. If we're faithful in these small things, just like Zechariah says, soon we will rejoice. What does Jesus say in the parable? Uh, you were faithful in a little, I will set you over much. And then he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We will rejoice. God does not despise small things, so we should not either. And remember today that something as pathetic as the crucifixion that made the disciples despair and disperse gave way to an empty tomb and a glorious resurrection. And the people that once despised that day rejoiced, even as today we have rejoiced. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, for your promise that equips us in the mission that you've given us, a promise that that assures us it's not by our might or by our power, it's by your spirit, and for that we can take a sigh of relief. We can rest in this, that your work you will see to completion in our hearts, in our homes, in our church. God, in the meantime, though, we can easily become discouraged. We can forget uh, the, the, the grand trajectory for which your plan is headed. It'll cause us not to despise the day of small things, for you do not despise them. Rather, let us wait patiently and work faithfully until Christ come again and make all things new. Amen.